Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our next guest is the representative from New York's 16th District. I like to call him the Wu-Tang Man. Please welcome Congressman Jamal Bowman. (laughs) How are you, Congressman? I am well. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Likewise. You're you're a principal by trade, though, right? Yes, sir. I was a middle school principal for 10 years in in the Northeast Bronx. And prior to that, I was a teacher and school counselor for 10 years prior to that. So I spent 20 years in public education. Yeah, so did I uh, in eighth grade. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have a lot in common. <laughs> um, now, you defeated a very powerful, very tenured uh, 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 congressman, Elliot Engel, right? Yes. And uh, you're what people would term a progressive. I don't know why people say that with such trepidation. What would you say a progressive is? Well, first of all, I'm a black man in America. Right. So that's how I describe myself. Right. Um, so do the police. The police describe you that way too. Mm-hmm. I just... That's right. <laughs> uh, but, but a progressive uh, in this day and age is someone who's quite frankly continuing the legacy of the civil rights movement, continuing the legacy of Dr. King, and, and fighting for a radical redistribution of political and economic power. So we're against uh, the overspending that's happening when it, go, when it comes to our military. Uh, we're against uh, police being funded at astronomical levels while our schools are underfunded and while people don't have housing. Uh, we're fighting for healthcare as a human right through Medicare for All. We're fighting for environmental justice and against environmental racism uh, for something called a Green New Deal. Uh, We believe in humane uh, immigration and criminal justice reform. Uh, We believe in human rights. Uh, That's what progressives are fighting for. It's continuing the legacy uh, of so many in the civil rights and black power movement. Uh, That's what we're all about. And I don't know why people say it with trepidation. 
They do, but they, they do. do. And even 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 people on the Democratic Party uh, side are apprehensive about saying it. And they always throw that up in places. They connect it to socialism. Um, and one, one thing that is has always uh, flummoxed me is people on the right have no problem saying they're staunch conservatives, right? They have no problem with it. I mean, it is everywhere. It's in the commercial. They have no problem saying that they're staunch conservatives. And everything has to have a nemesis or antithesis. It, wouldn't the antithesis of staunch conservatism be uh, pro- pro- progressivism? Wouldn't it be that? Uh, wouldn't that be the polar opposite of it? In my opinion, yes. Uh, it's a response to a conservative, not just political environment, but economic environment, right? When you look over the last 50 years, what we've seen is real wages have been stagnant and wealth has become concentrated in the hands of the one-tenth percent and the one percent, while childcare has gone up, housing has gone up, food has gone up, education has gone up. You know, people are really struggling. So for us, it's about, okay, how do we center those who are struggling the most and fight and work to get them what they need? Uh, that is what our political system is supposed to be about. So, yes, we are the response to a ultra-conservative, even alt-right America that we just came out of for the last three and a half years. But I, I, I find it interesting because a, 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 a Republican candidate hasn't run the popular vote since 1988, right? So, so since George H.W. Bush. So, not, not so a national office, a Republican hasn't won that office, uh, and so which would mean that most people feel comfortable with the ways. If you list the things that progressives say that they want, uh, society at large is in agreement with them. Uh, but when you call it socialism, or you say defund the police, or you put these monikers on it. Um, people tend to have a negative view of it, including um, uh, the Democratic Party. They they run away from it. And I don't understand why, if they can have staunch people on their side, that you wouldn't be able to do that on the opposite side. That you wouldn't have people who are proud to say, this is what I am, this is what I do. And not only be in your position, you're a new congressman, I'm talking about people in the upper echelons of leadership. Yeah, these are scare tactics that have been used not just by Republicans, but, but, but those in the Democratic Party. I think over the last several decades, Democrats in, in defending themselves have, have latched on to these Republican talking points to make arguments. And I think that that has been a mistake. We also got to understand that the wealthy elite right now at, in this moment control what happens in our political arena because big money is a major part of politics and fundraising is a major part. So many Democrats want to maintain quality relationships with those who can fund their campaigns. And this is not just on the national level. This is state and local as well. They want to continue to be heavily funded so that they can win re-election. And that's the problem. We've been more responsive to the corporate elite and the wealthy elite and we've ignored people who are most downtrodden. And what I'm most proud of when it comes to our campaign is we targeted uh, those who have been most ignored. And we knocked on their doors and we went to the projects and we pulled them into the conversation and said, listen, this is not just about me going to Congress. This is about you coming with us. And that's why we were able to triple voter turnout. And that's why we won by 16 points. Can I ask you what you hope to accomplish from your congressional seat? <laughs> Reparations. Um, that that that's probably at the top of the agenda. Um, you know, we've done so many studies on the impact of of racism 
We've done so many studies on the legacy of slavery. Uh, and what you continue to see today in 2020 is, con is continued poor health, economic, and education outcomes uh, for black and brown people. Um, so we need to have a serious conversation about reparations. We need to implement policy and resources into communities that have been historically neglected. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, black people are more likely to live in under-resourced communities is because of redlining. Right. That is a government policy. Uh, the government uh, sanctioned $120 billion in home loans 90, over a 30-year period from the 1930s to 1960s. 98% went to white families to build a white mm. suburb. We need to reverse that impact, right? And that only happens through reparations, through, through providing opportunities for blacks to get housing and home ownership and, and land ownership, uh, black businesses, uh, public education and higher education. Uh, we need to make sure to reinvest, uh, to fix the harms uh, that we've been implementing throughout American history. You know it's so interesting to me. I feel like anytime I hear the word reparations and, you know, trying to you know, level the playing field, if you will, you know, even down to them calling the squad, you know, the people, uh, the AOC and the Ayanna Priest. I think he's on the squad now, yeah, too. I think so, too. <laughs> no, but it's so funny. Squad. I feel like people act like that's a bad thing when you start talking about those things that are so important and actually speaking a truth. You know what I mean? When you think about the squad, they are people who are saying things that make people very uncomfortable. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but why is there so much criticism about that? Because we black. Uh, <laughs> of, <laughs> My nigga! I know it! <laughs> but that's what I'm talking about. That right there, uh, that answer. We're talking about black people and Latinx people and indigenous people and poor people. We always have to wait. And we're always at the back of the line. And, and, and we don't want to have those conversations. Whereas, you know, we, we provided reparations to the Jewish community. Yep. Yeah. By the reparations to the Japanese community, and rightly so, they should have received reparations as well, um, and we should receive it as well. So it's about having serious conversations, and if we're truly going to become the America that is that's that exists in alignment with the ideals of our Constitution, then we have to provide reparations to the African American community. And you mentioned the squad; those are my sisters. I mean, as soon as I met them, like we connected, like you know peanut butter and jelly like it's been it's been <laughs> right. excellent but the point is let's center those who have been most neglected and marginalized and disenfranchised that's black folk that's latinx folk that's indigenous folk that's poor folk as long as we do that we're doing the work of the people and not the work of corporations you know it's funny it's it, it, it depends what's in the name and oftentimes uh Reparations is really no different than restorative justice. It's like really saying we're trying to set the clock mm -hmm. back to a, a to neutral, to a fair, to a to a fair uh, metric. Um, why is it uh, that um, things like reparations, things like the Green New Deal? Because I don't think most Black people understand that environmentally, a lot of those environmental rollbacks uh, that Chunch, uh, Trump uh, signed the, uh, the uh, orders on, executive orders on, are going to kill more black young boys and girls in Corona because of dirty air, dirty water, dirty, uh, dirty environments. Um, in the next 10 to 15 years, they'll ha there'll be more people that die as a result of those, of those uh, rollbacks than, than are killed in this pandemic that we're experiencing. But that seems to be addressing that to a lot of people, even in the urban community, seems like not, not a big concern. Or some of the things, I think that 
it it takes a lot to step out and understand the things that you're arguing for and how they directly impact uh, communities of color all over the country. You know, you are three times more likely to die of asthma in sure. the Bronx than anywhere else uh, in the country. One of the reasons why COVID has impacted black people disproportionately is because we disproportionately have upper respiratory illnesses and other comorbidities that happens as a result of landfills and power plants being placed in our communities that were redlined, right? So this is all by political and economic design. When you look at housing, public housing in particular, uh, and the maintenance issues in public housing, you have rodent and roach feces uh, in public housing. Kids are inhaling that. They're developing asthma as a result. You have lead uh, that's in much of the paint that's there. Sure. Uh, they're developing lead poisoning uh, as a result. So, you know, housing injustice, environmental injustice, underfunded schools, lack of job opportunities. These are like, uh, this is like slavery by another name and sure. oppression by another name, right? So when I travel throughout the district, these are the conversations I, I would have with my constituents. And I, I have a majority minority district. And before I even said the words Green New Deal, we just talked about those issues as the issues. Right. And then people, they, and they pulled people in and now say, well, let me tell you about a Green New Deal. A Green New Deal rights the wrongs of a new deal during the new deal you know we injected resources into the american economy built the white middle class provided a federal jobs guarantee by the way black people were kept out of that mm. green new deal is doing the same thing but we're starting with black people and poor people first to pull them and what in seems to be the lapse because because that sounds honestly like if you if you for the last 50, 60 years, if you say should all, uh, you said Americans have health care, uh, have, uh, you know, opportunity to have health care. They all agree to it. You call it, you call it socialism. They don't. Um, um, the Green New Deal was, in, you would hear uh, politicians who were running against it, conservative politicians, poo-poo it and say it was a bad thing. But I think the one thing that is clear, um, um, that they win the propaganda uh, campaign. They win it. And they win it handily. And I think it's because there is almost a not, it's not a single-minded, it's easy to say this is bad, but it's hard to say why this is good. And I think that until um, the progressives find a way to mitigate the fact that they control the propaganda, then you're going to have problems like we're having now, where, where the things that you're saying make so much sense and are so much more reasonable, but because it has a name, uh, that you can't kind of, you, you, that moniker is hard to overcome. Yeah, I, I think Republicans used to win the propaganda game. I think progressives are gaining a lot of ground um, in terms of winning public opinion and winning the overall narrative. I think I would like to see progressives do a better job of pulling in uh, the black community in particular and communities of color more generally so that they can have a seat at the table and be a part of but what this What would that look like? Because yeah. having a seat at the table, we saw how important communities of color were. Like uh, Biden didn't win Georgia, he won Atlanta. <laughs> he, didn't win, <laughs> he, he didn't win Michigan, he won Detroit and Flint. Mm -hmm. So he, 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 he won where large, he didn't win Phoenix, he didn't win Arizona, he won Phoenix, he didn't win Nevada, uh, he won, but he won where large concentra concentration of black and brown people live and, and younger white people. 
So he, he it, why why isn't the things that they responded to wouldn't be part of the mandate? Well, absolutely. So the reason why Biden was able to win in places like Detroit, places like Milwaukee, Atlanta, Philadelphia, is because of black organizers yes. on the ground in those states and in those cities. So even though, you know, I identify as a progressive and Biden and I aren't aligned on many issues, I still made sure to, to pull out my my progressive army to be a part of doing everything we could to support Biden in winning in those particular states. Uh, my sister Ilhan Omar did yeah. everything she could to make sure uh, Biden won in Minnesota. Rashida Tlaib did what she could to make sure he won Michigan. So we are being intentional in targeting uh, Black and Latinx communities and indigenous communities and pulling people in that historically have lost faith in our system and rightly so right. and, and, because and, the system hasn't done enough for them. So we, myself and other members of the squad and other progressives, those are the area, those are the people that we target because we know once they get in, the game changes. And we're going to do it again in Georgia because we got we to gotta run off election off, yeah. and we got to win that so that Mitch McConnell is not the majority leader in the Senate. So, this, so we're not done yet. We got to win this Georgia seat. This is critical. What do you, what do you think the for, first progressive victory would look like in your mind? Uh, the first progressive victory that's substantive enough for you to feel like you're, you've made an impact? So what I'm happy uh, to see so far is Biden has adopted aspects of a Green New Deal in his platform. So he's committed an investment of $2 trillion to deal with environmental justice and environmental racism, with 40% going to communities of color. So that's huge. That's, more progress that's a more progressive environment agenda that, than we've ever seen in the history uh, of the presidency. So that's huge. So we're able to get that done we're able to push for more because that $2 trillion is not going to be enough, especially with the goal of getting the net zero carbon emissions over the next 10 years. Um, the second big win or another big win would be universal health care, um, single payer system, Medicare for all, uh, which Biden hasn't he hasn't gone that far. No, he has not. But what he has done is is untether health care from employment, which is key, which is what they call a public option. So again, that's not something me and me and other progressives we want to go further, but the public option is 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 way further than Democrats were ever speaking about before. So that's what we progressives do. We 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 put our we draw a line in the sand and say this is where we're negotiating from. This is where we need to go. And you want to work with us, you better come very close to this line and soon we're going to be right at the line. But Green New Deal and Medicare for All are going to be two pieces housing infrastructure as well over the next 10 years is going to be big as well as fully funding public schools it's a, it's a pleasure talking to you i want to ask you something before you go you were in education for a long time i was in a, a, pub, a public school education i never saw a black principal never male principal wow. ever saw one i never saw one and I, I i make jokes about uh you know the fact that i never went to college and never graduated from high school but we know uh, with empirical data that the more access that young black children have to black educators uh, along their, their educational journey, the more likely they are to go to higher education. Um, what, do you, what do you plan to do, or what do you plan to, to be a vo voice for, specifically because you have an expertise in education? Um, the more black teachers that we have, male teachers in black young men's lives, uh, the better they're going to be. That's just, there's no debate about that. So it seems like that would be a reasonable ask 
form administration that's coming in and trying to deal with and to mitigate some of the, the, the vestiges of racism. Wouldn't that be something that would be something that you, you, you would have a level of ex- expertise about that? Black boys explodes to black male teachers equals a, 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 a pretty, that's a pretty positive income. I mean, outcome. Absolutely. That's a great point. And let me just say quickly that when I became a principal, uh, I was the only uh, black male principal out of 50 schools in my district in the in the Bronx, even. Right? Yeah. How did they, they pull that? The Bronx, <laughs> right, right. So the, the Bronx is all black and brown. So that, that just aff- affirms your point. But so there are already programs in place. So Obama started something called My Brother's Keeper. Uh, that's a part of the recruitment retaining uh, and, and training of, of black male teachers. Uh, New York City has an initiative called New York City Men Teach, uh, which is a quality initiative. But I also want to say this, um, and I don't mean this disrespectfully that, to every, anyone, but you got to get the right black male teachers in schools as well. Um, and you got to get the right teachers, period. Just, just good teachers. So, you know, if we're only recruiting black men who have a 3.5 GPA or 3.0 GPA, uh, that's not going to cut it all the time because we can't just, it's not just about developing kids academically. It's about developing them socially and emotionally and, psych- and psychologically as well and taking a holistic approach to how we teach kids. So we, we continue to beat the, you know, college, college success, academic success, great. But some of our kids are incredibly creative. They're incredibly innovative. Uh, they're musical. They're other things. And we need to provide a curriculum that, that's holistic, that taps into the unlimited potential of our kids. So in addition to recruiting more black male teachers and more men of color, we need to make sure our curriculum is more diverse as well, rooted in black history and culture, rooted in music, and rooted in everything that we know our kids are, are excited and passionate about. And that'll help make their experience better overall in our K-12 schools. Well, you, 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 I know I know you're a oh, principal sir. because you said some things I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep thinking I'm going to be in trouble after this conversation. <laughs> <all right>? Attention, <laughs> attention. Thank you for joining us, Congressman. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Hey, invite me back, okay? I, I will back. indeed. I will indeed. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. A Thank pleasure. you. Take care. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to D.L. Hughley Uncut. Our next guest is the former Secretary of Education. Welcome, John B. King. I love you. Hey, man, nice to have you on the show. Thank you, man. Thank you for coming. Glad to be here. I love you, B.B. Uh, King, Martin Luther King. The King's been good to us. Yes, they have. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the former Secretary of Education. What do you and Betty DeVos have in common? Oh, uh, God. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank God. Y'all had the same letterhead. Y'all at least had the same office. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I mean, I it's horrifying to me and I think to all educators how she's approached this job. And uh, I'm just 
thrilled and relieved that we can move on from this period. Do you think that her approach to education or that the, that administration's approach to education uh, was detrimental, set them back in some ways, was very aggressive? Do you think that there will be implications, long-range implications from, from, from her approach to, to, to that uh, department? Yeah, I mean, in, in three areas. One is, you know, she was very focused on vouchers and private schools, and I think sent a message to public school teachers and parents and students that they were not valued. And that negative message will, will linger. Two, uh, this administration completely botched the handling of COVID. And the result is that, um, we have an out-of-control spread of COVID-19, and schools not able to operate in person, kids who are without opportunities to learn, uh, no real effort on the part of this administration to get kids computers and Wi-Fi access and all the things they needed uh, in order to be able to learn virtually. So that will have a long-term detrimental effect. And then they've really... Uh, retreated from any civil rights enforcement responsibility in this administration. And it's not just in education. Across agencies, the directive was essentially walk away from the federal government's job of protecting people against discrimination. So we have a lot of work to do uh, in, the, in the upcoming administration to reverse uh, the damage that's been done during the Trump administration. Now, to that end, you're doing something very innovative in Maryland, right? Uh, you, you're proud of the model that you are working on creating. I mean, I, would that be some, well, first tell us about that for those people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started this organization called Strong Future Maryland, and the mission of the organization is to make sure that we come out of this COVID-19 moment uh, stronger, that we don't just try to go back to the inequities that existed before COVID-19, but that we actually build a more equitable, more just, more prosperous future, that we invest in education, that we strengthen uh, the social safety net, that we uh, have economic recover an economic recovery that really reaches to every corner of our state so that folks who've been in communities that have so often been forgotten have access to economic opportunities. So we're we're really trying to do movement building and build a movement across the state that says uh, we need a more progressive future. Uh, you, you, it was interesting. Up until the 1970s, the United States of America was the finest model of education, the, educating the largest numbers of people. At one, they, were, they were excellent at that. Um, 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 but then something happened. And my uh, idea of what happened is that the people moved away uh, out of the inner cities and the the, the, the uh, urban areas and took those resources with them. Um, I, I, so, but that's not it's not based on anything. It's just kind of my observation. What happened from us being able to educate mass numbers of people, uh, having a very uh, educated society, much more educated than now than we are now? What happened to, to make us degrade? What happened to make us devolve? Yeah, I did two, two things. One is really in the 1980s, you had this uh, in the Reagan administration, this decision to walk away from trying to integrate our schools and to walk away from investing in the public sector. And we're still living with the consequences of those shifts. So you're right. Folks moved out of the city into suburbs. We actually are more segregated in many places in the country today than we were in right. the 80s. Um, they took the resources with them. But also the federal government and state governments 
began to put more resources into uh, more new resources into incarceration and kind of walked away from our responsibility to invest in public education. Isn't that because that a lot of people who hold public office believe that black and brown children are inferior and don't want to learn? They really do. They they believe that that there is there is this notion that it is a waste of money to build schools and curriculums and programs that benefit people who will not avail themselves to it and who are only, uh, you know, on a fast path, uh, path to prison. I, I just, you, you can see even the, the way they taught. The, one of the things I always found uh, horrible was that black people are always, and brown people are always judged by the exception and never the rule. It's always mm-hmm. the exceptional kid, and how come you can't be more like him? Where mediocrity is the fair of the day uh, for white folk. Like, you can be mediocre, mediocre and still have a good job. Um, black people, either you are going to be an exceptional human being or hanging from the last rung of society. And I think that that, that starts from a very uh, early age when we get into the educational system and they perpetuate the notion that we are somehow inferior, that we are somehow don't belong here and that this is a wasted time and exercise. Well, you see that in the way that discipline is handled in schools, mm-hmm. you know, that that. African-American students are more than three times as likely to be suspended. I was all of them. I was was all of them. I was every one of them. (laughs) Starting starting in pre-K, starting with four-year-olds, right? What is is a four-year-old doing that you have to, that you you can't do anything about? You have to send them home at four. Right. Rather than educate them. So that starts to send a message to kids that they're devalued. Uh, and certainly sends a message to teachers about how to view their students. So yes, I think bias is certainly a factor, but there's also kind of almost a passive uh, complicity in inequity where people say to themselves, well, my kid's doing fine, my local school is fine. Inequity is somebody else's problem. But the reality is majority of the kids in the nation's public schools today are kids of color. If we don't if we don't ensure that kids of color have access to quality education, we have no future as a country. Yeah, it's that simple. It is really that simple. And I'll tell you what I think that there is an inherent selfishness built into uh, the American equation that's almost undeniable. I think it's the reason why uh, schools are depreciating. I think it's the reason why Corona took hold. I think it is. It ain't me. It's going to happen to somebody else, and the people who it's happening to aren't valuable to me anyway. Uh, I, I think there's. We are rife with selfishness, but even at the bureaucratic level, even at the level that's supposed to be, uh, you know, it, it's funny because g- government is weird. If you're very rich, you want the government out the way, you know, when <laughs> you want it to turn the other way. And if you're not, you want it to help you. Uh, but the problem is the people who need access to the government have no apparatus to it. It's the rich people who control what they get. It's, it's like I always compare it to an eclipse. Like everybody always tells you they're eclipsed, but you need this special equipment to see it. You know, you can't just walk outside. You know, it'll look dark to me. And, and the inequities really kind of play out like that. So I think that I never really, and I feel bad about this, I never really understood the messages I was hearing and how I repeated them. Um, um, and how valuable education was and how important it was and how as much as security uh, and safety for the American population, it owes its, its citizens, particularly its younger ones, the right to a good education. And, and I right. think that we shirked our responsibilities. That's right. It's fundamental to the success of our economy, to the access, success of our democracy, to our national security, is making sure every kid has access to a quality education. And my hope is 
that President-elect Biden has an opportunity, I think, to ask people to see that they have a stake in not only their own kids' education, but their neighbors' kids' education, the education of kids in the next town over, the kids in the, in the community that's down the road, uh, the kids uh, who are living on a Native American reservation, the kids who are in our poorest communities. All of us are so deeply interconnected, and I, and I think this period around COVID has helped to show us how deeply interconnected we are. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic given the election outcome, but but we're going to have to organize and, and build a movement around these issues. Well, I think it's going to take a lot of work because yeah. when you think about COVID and a lot of these parents who had to stay home and, and try to educate their children, you know. And, With they dumbasses. Right. No, but seriously, you have to think about how that block of time that our children lost and you won't get back and you don't think about the importance of it until it's hindsight and you're looking back and you're like, wow, you know, now my kid is, you know, behind because instead of sitting in front of the computer or in a classroom, you know, they were trying to pay attention. But, you know, your competition is the refrigerator or it's it's the ball mm-hmm. and my kids over here. And, and now my parents are frustrated and they don't want to sit with me for an hour or two or for three hour blocks out of the day. So how do we make that time up? What are we going to do from an educational standpoint? Yeah. Well, one one thing we could do and should do, in my view, is we should mobilize an army of tutors amongst young people. You know, we have a lot of young people who are graduating from college into a terrible economy. We should mobilize those young people as tutors and have a national tutoring corps to try to make up. Kind of like the job corps used to be. Mm-hmm. The job yes. corps, yeah. Yes. You know what's interesting? United Kingdom is going to do that. Actually, they are putting mm. money into a national tutoring corps, and, and, and it takes should... it takes those kinds of things. What's interesting uh, to 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 kind of dovetail on what Jasmine was saying, even if you had a diligent parent, a lot of poor people, a lot of underprivileged people have one device. Mm-hmm. They have one device. They might have three kids, one device. So it's no matter what it is, it is a limited access to resources. It is the way that we're resourced. And, and, and the problem is, like, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. When I was a kid growing up, there was a, a, a proposition called Proposition 13. Howard Jarvis did it. And it connected everything to property taxes. Mm-hmm. Once that passed, my entire neighborhood was decimated. And I guarantee you, in neighborhoods all over the inner city, and I guarantee you if you extrapolate that out and watch the spike in crime and drugs and imprisonment, it happens as a result of the resources being being strangled and choked off. Like, I, nobody could get... Uh, we used to have summer jobs. We used to have uh, summer after-school programs. We would have, you know, free lunches. We would have parks and recreations. And all that went away, and all we had was they took the money and went on, and we built basically a prison factory. That's right. No, that's, that's totally right. Think about that. But even before COVID, 79% of white families had reliable Internet access, only 66% of black families, and 61% of Latino families. So there are kids who have not had access to school since March, right? Mm-hmm. Who haven't even where the school district hasn't even been in touch with them since March. What's the long-term legacy of that? And and we could have solved for that in the wealthiest country in the world. We could have made sure every kid had a device. But why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? <laughs> well, that's exactly, well. exactly exactly that. To me, that's what the election was about, in in no small part. Right. Like, are we a society that is only about each person, you know, taking what they can for themselves 
or are we a society where we are interdependent and we care about the rest of our fellow citizens? Then, then I would say that that was the fact that almost 72 million people decided that that was a wager they weren't willing to make. Listen, I think this is inherent in us. I think that inherently, as a nation, we believe people who are poor and, and disenfranchised were responsible for. They were architects of it. They did it themselves. It was. It was. A, it was a, it's a failure. It's a lack of discipline. It is. It is. It is their own fault. And as long as you have a society that views things from that perspective, they're not. It, it's not incumbent on them to do anything. It, there's no. There's no urgency about that. I, I think uh, you know that's a fair point. I mean, I, I think there is this sense that if you're wealthy, you did it on your own without paying attention sure. to the fact that you benefited from. Right highways and the internet and all all the other things that society has contributed to and that if you are poor that's somehow a, a moral failing right and that mindset allows right. people to sort of uh kind of shirk responsibility for taking care of each other uh we've got to overcome that and that that's that again that that's to me why we need a movement that helps people understand uh what their fellow citizens are experiencing. We need empathy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh, but I understand. listen. True, I think though. that that's in short supply. I think that listen. I I I think that it there needs to be more than empathy because that is kind of this human thing that you either have or you don't. If we had empathy, we wouldn't have a society where hundreds of thousands of Americans were dead and we voted for more of the same, etc. Mm -hmm. I think it takes something past. It, it takes innovation. It takes. Um, I don't think people see how. Like going back to that example of what happened in California where they passed Proposition 13 and they got their property taxes, but they had to spend more money imprisoning people <laughs> like and then had to overturn. So they don't understand how these kinds of decisions that seem prudent from a financial standpoint really are going to be more expensive later on. They're really more expensive later on. So I don't think empathy it, I think they have to show, because in America, really, if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. Nobody understands that. Um, I, and, and for us, they have to understand how the damage that they're doing now, they will pay for tenfold later on. I mean, I think it's really just uh, there is a punitive aspect. I know you can't punish society, but you can't expect a society that is has an empathy deficit to all of a sudden develop one when it comes to people that they have no connection to. Uh, that's fair. I think we have to help folks understand. I think your point about the trade-offs, right? We could spend $15,000 on a quality education for a seven-year-old, or we could spend $100,000 to incarcerate them. That's, that, that makes sense, because that's not empathy. That's you get to keep your shit without getting robbed. That's what that is. That's what that is. I think you should go. I'm, I'm telling you, go back to the Department of Education. Tell them that. You, want, you like your shit? Give us some money. That's really, that's really. Hey, man, thank you. You, you, you're a bright dude, and I hope. What is that again in Maryland? What is what? What is Strong it called? Strong future, Maryland. Well, good man. They got that. Well, look here. If, if when you get finished with them, come to California. We can use you. All, all right. That that's 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 the deal, <laughs> folks. Find out more. Strongfuturemd.org. For sure, man. Thanks. Thank you, man. Thank I tell you, you so I like much. all the kings. Martin Luther <laughs> King, Benny King, Burger King. They're all my favorites. All right, man. Take care. <laughs>